to me, it's always kind of being realistic about the depth of the crisis and crises we're in, but also not disempowering ourselves by saying, oh, it's all hopeless and there's nothing we can do. It's also finding a joy and encouragement and hope in the victories and in, in the struggles people are waging. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm your co-host, Nora Barrows-Friedman, with Asa Wynn Stanley and our colleague and the executive director of the Electronic Intifada, Ali Abunima. Ali and Asa, hello. How are you? Hi. Hi. So uh, I'm, I'm honored to be invited onto the Electronic Intifada, Intifada podcast. I have to say I'm a, a long-time listener and first-time caller. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're really glad to have you on. Um, and Thank you. Uh, we thought it would be a really great idea to um, all three of us discuss some of the the, the, the highlights uh, and lowlights, obviously, because we're talking about situation in Palestine um, over the last year, and 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 some of the the general themes, the general stories, um, and some of the the deep investigations that that we've all done and published and edited in 2019. Um, so maybe we can just start by by giving a, a, an overview of, you know, what in in your view, Ali, uh, 2019 has has looked like for Palestinians and people struggling for their rights uh, around the world. What sticks out to you the most um, when you talk about this this past year in general and, and maybe specifically as well? Wow. Well, it's First, it's hard to believe it's the end of the year, and uh, that seems to happen. And I think it's it's been one of those years where it's really hard to hold on to uh, hope and not feel despair at the way the world is going uh, in general, but also for Palestinians in particular. However, I tend to think we have no option but to hold on to hope and to keep struggling for the kind of world we want to live in. And I, I think that uh, in a way sums up where Palestinians are because we can, on any number of measures, find things getting worse for Palestinians, whether it's the catastrophe that Israel is imposing on Gaza through the blockade and the violence against uh, Great March of Return uh, protesters, which is ongoing, whether it's the... Trump administration's complete endorsement of every horrific thing Israel wants to do. Um, but at the same time, we see people fighting back. We see Palestinians uh, holding on. Uh, we see that spirit of um, steadfastness still there. And we see people around the world uh, holding fast to Palestinian rights. You know, I don't know what day uh, people will be listening to this podcast, but on the day we're recording it, the International Criminal Court has just announced that um, uh, it it's going to proceed with an investigation of Israeli war crimes. That's a big deal. I mean, there's still many obstacles in the way, but let's remember that, you know, Israel and the U.S. and their allies have doing ev been doing everything they can to 
prevent it even getting this far. So to me, it's always kind of being realistic about the depth of the crisis and crises we're in, but also not disempowering ourselves by saying, oh, it's all hopeless and there's nothing we can do. It's also finding a joy and encouragement and hope in the victories and in, in the struggles people are waging. Mm. Asa, what about you? Uh, looking back on 2019 um, and ahead, obviously, because that's a lot of your reporting as well. Uh, I think that what Ali said about finding hope where we can chimes quite a lot right now because of uh, the terrible election result that's just happened in the UK and uh, it you know it, it we can't say it was something that we didn't see coming uh, and, and I guess we'll, we're gonna talk about the whole labor anti-semitism fabricated crisis um, in the course of this podcast but um, it's it, it, it's it's has been a difficult story to cover in a lot of ways um and uh just the the, the constant um barrage of how it never went away um was something that is it's hard to find hope in a story mm. like that basically but there there is hope there just in the terms of um how people just the people really the ordinary uh, labour activists that I met and that I'm meeting in the course of covering the story were the people who filled me with hope mm. in that situation and how people have become really educated and they've had sort of a crash course in people who support Palestine but not necessarily um, full-time Palestine activists. Um, they've had a crash course in the dirtiness of um, how... Zionist organizations act in false allegations of anti-Semitism. So it's really kind of um, been a political education for a lot of people in a lot of ways. Um, so I suppose there's, there's definitely hope in that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's well, really, how about you, Nora? It's really hard to fight cynicism. Um, I think that's like a general theme of, you know, anyone who's been involved in, you know, leftist organizing or reporting um, anything that has to do with with Palestine. Um, but, you know, some of the stories that keep me hopeful and and combat my own cynicism are the stories of, of students and young people um, who are going up against um, entrenched, you know, Israel lobby strategies um, to counter student organizing on campuses. And, you know, even in the face of this latest executive order that, that, that Trump signed a couple of weeks ago, letting the floodgates open to have the, the U.S. government um, criminalize Palestine solidarity organizing on campuses, students are saying, well, you know, there there's no time like the present. We have to, you know, double down on our organizing and our campaigning, um, and we won't be intimidated. Um, the 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 Palestine Solidarity Movement is growing. It is becoming um, such a popular campaign on campuses and in organizing circles um, that no matter how much they try to litigate it away. Um, it's it's not going anywhere. Um, 
And, you know, students are operating on little to no budgets. They are constantly harassed and threatened, um, attacked, like we saw at York University in, in Toronto uh, in November. And they are, they're keeping their heads up. They know that the, the, the struggle and the fight is, is a long one. It's a protracted one. And they're in it. Um, so, so that keeps me hopeful and, and, you know, combats cynicism. Um, and then, you know, the reporting that we've been publishing for almost 20 years now, uh, that the electronic intifada has been around. Um, I oh know. My God. <laughs> I, I don't like to think about that. We don't, we don't do anniversaries. Okay, good. <laughs> because also we don't, we don't, we don't want to be around forever. That's we want right. To, Exactly. You know, we want to be done. That's right. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have an important secondary career in video game journalism. <laughs> I, I want to start after the liberation well, of Palestine. My plan is to learn woodworking. That's great. I, I just want to run a cafe. <laughs> nice. That would be great. But yeah, I think, you know, looking at the, the exquisite reporting that uh, especially our contributors in Gaza have been doing over the past year, um, I mean, I was trying to count the number of attacks that Israel levied against Gaza in in the last year. And I mean, it, it was it was relentless, as it always is. And yet our our contributors, they're going out there, they're getting the stories for us with just incredible courage and reporting styles. It's just it's been really um, it's a privilege to work with them and all of our contributors. But um, maybe we could highlight some of the stories uh, from Gaza, from our contributors that, that have really made an impact on, on the Electronic Intifada and our readership. Well, there's so, there's so many, and just, you know, I second that. I mean, the, our writers in Gaza, I think, they're the, the jewel and the crown of what we do because these are uh, writers who are reporting what's happening in Gaza in a way that no mainstream media does. In fact, it's considered a disadvantage to be a Palestinian in mainstream media because somehow you're not trusted, whereas right. actually our reporters in Gaza are, are the ones who have the stories and who the ones who have access to Gaza society in a way that, you know, an outsider parachuting in doesn't. And I guess one of the stories that really touched me this year um, was a story by Sara al-Gharbawi, who is a regular contributor in Gaza. Uh, it was published in September with the headline, When Will Dad Come Home? And you may remember earlier this year, uh, an Israeli official, an anonymous Israeli official, uh, who we sus actually suspect was Benjamin Netanyahu himself, mm. briefed the press. This was during uh, the Israeli election campaign, the second Israeli election campaign. He briefed the press that Israel was kind of deliberately making conditions in Gaza so difficult as to force Palestinians to leave, to get rid of them. And he bragged that 35,000 Palestinians had left uh, Gaza during uh, 2018 and um, that Israel was even like talking to other countries about, you know, uh, to, you know, we'll, we'll even, Israel would even let its air bases be used to airlift Palestinians out of uh, Gaza. So basically, 
ethnic cleansing yeah. on a mass scale. And what this story does is it really asks, well, who are the people who are being affected by these ethnic cleansing policies? And uh, it tells the story, for example, of uh, Tamir al-Hindi, uh, uh, excuse me, Tamir al-Sultan, a Palestinian in Gaza, uh, the father of uh, two children, um, and uh, he had owned a pharmacy and because of the blockade, because of the conditions, he was forced to sell it and in desperation uh, decided to leave Gaza um, and he, he managed to get to Turkey, then boarded a ship for Greece, uh, then, you know, from Greece embarked on the arduous journey uh, through the Balkans, which so many, you know, countless refugees have taken from Afghanistan to Palestine to Syria through Europe where they've often received not always a great welcome and uh, his wife Marwa spoke to him on uh, the 11th of August and she told uh, the electronic intifada that uh, Tamir was about to enter the woods of Bosnia and Herzegovina and hoped to reach Croatia within six days and she said that was the last time I heard his voice. Mm. Um, and what happened was uh, that he had fallen and injured himself um, badly and didn't have any treatment and, you know, became infected and died of blood poisoning in a hospital in uh, Bosnia, far away from his family, you know, no, no one around him. Uh, and uh, he actually had three children and his youngest daughter uh, still asks when will dad come home and to me it was just it's one of the stories that I would say I think about almost every day yeah and it's something like as you said the New York Times the Washington Post would never cover some of our contributors in Gaza have also um, produced really beautiful videos of workers and athletes, farmers in Gaza, who are trying to struggle under the, the, the conditions of the siege and blockade. Um, what are some of the, the video highlights that, that have come up for you? Yeah, I, I love these videos. And they're you know, typically sort of two to five minute videos, really beautifully uh, produced. Um, and you know, shot by uh, different people in Gaza. Uh, the, there's a really nice one on um, Suleiman Abu Taima, who's a, a Palestinian embroidery artist, and that's not something that typically men have done in Palestinian society. And it's just a, a wonderful story about how he you know, gave it up because there was no encouragement. And then he got married and his wife f discovered that he had this incredible talent and encourages him to do it. And so that's a beautiful story. Um, there's uh, another one uh, I love. There's a couple, one about um, the, uh, the, the Gaza Depke, uh, Palestinian uh, traditional dance, uh, wheelchair dance team and this is an, an innovation in Gaza of uh, of people in Gaza who use wheelchairs who have sort of developed the Debke so that they can take part in it and I think it's a wonderful story about um, you know people demanding to be a full part of 
society and doing it in such a creative way. And another another one I love, um, which uh, it just makes my mouth water, and it's uh, about a sweet factory in Gaza that um, has had a lot of success integrating uh, deaf workers and the Hanan Sweet Factory. And if you watch this little video, um, it's just beautiful because it just it just makes your mouth water. You see the <laughs> Batlawa and the Knafa being made, and it quotes uh, one, uh, uh, you know, several of the workers um, who talk about what a great experience it's been for them. And so it's just wonderful to see these aspects of daily life, which again, you're not going to see on MSNBC, you're not going to see on the BBC, uh, for the most part. And I'm just very proud of um, all the all the different contributors uh, who, who are bringing them to the electronic intifada. Mm. Yeah, we produced one uh, just recently about a beekeeper um, in, I think, in northern Gaza, um, a woman who's carrying on the tradition of her family um, after the bee farm had been, you know, pounded by Israeli attacks over the last few years. Um, several members of of her family had been killed, uh, in, including I think her father, um, and and just you know the the just the filmmaking, the the beautiful cinematography. Um, along with this this very stunning story that this woman had to tell, I, I thought was really beautiful. And um, yeah, yeah, I'm really proud of the work that that we've done with, yeah. with our video makers. Uh, and that that video, yeah, sorry, that, that video about the beekeeper uh, is by Ola Musa and Yusuf Masharawi. And the video I mentioned earlier about the deaf workers is by. Uh, also, frequent electronic intifada contributor Muhammad Assad. And, uh, you know, those are just a couple of the, the regular contributors that we're very happy to work with. And we'll be putting the links to all the videos and the stories that we talk about on the Electronic Intifada podcast blog that accompanies this podcast. Um, Asa, let's, uh, let's take a step into the labor anti-Semitism crisis. And, you know, we oh, haven't even done do a post-mortem on the... <laughs> I think we do. We yeah, I mean we haven't even talked since the, you know, since since the defeat of labor. Um it was just uh shocking. I mean, we were texting on the night of 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 the election and um it was it was grim. Yeah. Um, and you've been covering this for 4 years now. Um can you talk a little bit about how how we got to this point and what what the defeat of the Labour Party means for Palestine solidarity in the UK? Well, um, uh, I do want to say I told you so because I did tell you so, and we did tell you so. Um, I, th <laughs> I think uh, it is. We're only uh, a week out from uh, the general election campaign, a week ago today. Um, was the day after, and it was Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th, it was a grim day, you know. Um, <laughs> it was uh, a really bad election defeat for Jeremy Corbyn, there's no doubt about that, you know, 200 and... I think it was 203 seats uh, for the Labour Party mm. in Parliament, um, the worst results since the 1930s in, ter in terms of... Um, 
the number of seats, you know, the the worst results since um, 1983 by other metrics. Um, yeah, it was it was bad. Um, there was, um, I think, it was quite clear though that uh, the Labour anti-Semitism smears had really cut through to the mainstream electorate. Like it, it, it's just really clear um, to me in in this election that it it was really aside from Brexit. The main issue in the campaign was, in the electoral campaign, was so-called Labour anti-Semitism. You know, for the longest time, people on the left were saying that it wouldn't matter, you know, that it wouldn't really matter. It, the general electorate didn't really care about anti-Semitism um, and um, that, um, you know, some people could see through it. And for people who couldn't see through it, they wouldn't care. Um, but it, to me, and from everyone I've spoken to from the whole course of the campaign, you know, just the, the mainstream coverage and, and ha speaking to Labour activists who were on the doorstep um, and were talking to voters, it did come up. You know, it was an issue. And the reason it was an issue is because the Labour anti-Semitism smear campaign was never about real anti-Semitism. It was about... Um, defeating the left and it was about protecting Israel um, and the whole the, the idea that Jeremy Corbyn the, the false idea that Jeremy Corbyn is an anti-Semite and the Labour Party is riddled with anti-Semites under him um, fed into a wider smear campaign in the mainstream media that Corbyn was some sort of fanatic extremist that he was like this Marxist terrorist anti-Semite it was it was all part of the, that narrative um and it cut through it was the most effective um sabotage narrative against jeremy corbyn by far um and uh it really was the main fact aside from the issue of brexit um this was it was really the most um uh frequently mentioned issue in this campaign time and time again and and what it did was it 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 set up the idea that um they're both as bad as each other so that you know there's many sort of racist statements that boris johnson has made and and so but corbyn couldn't go on the attack about that too much because um if he did his so-called anti-semitism was was brought up but then it was brought up anyway so he should have really gone on the attack more really and, and what well, at all he didn't and the problem was that all along um was that that none of this was inevitable and corbyn unfortunately acquiesced to it so uh, as i wrote in my uh article the day after um the american left should really learn the lessons of this and unfortunately, I, I don't see that they're going to. Uh, what I've seen so far in terms of responses in the US, people are responding well on one hand, um, saying that, you know, people it, it, on the American left and what I've seen are sort of saying, yeah, this was obviously rubbish, that um, the idea that Jeremy Corbyn's an anti-Semite and we shouldn't accept it, so on and so forth. But from what I've seen in responses so far, people are complacent and they're saying, well, it's not going to work here, you know, because Bernie Sanders is Jewish. And I think that is real, potentially 
uh, fatal complacency. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the, the big picture is that uh, Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party that he led as a mass party, you know, the largest mass party in Europe with a left-wing agenda, not a particularly radical no. left-wing agenda, but in the, cur- in the current political circumstances, more left than we've seen in a major Western country in, yeah. you know, decades, the, that, that threat was considered a systemic threat to the, the managers of the current neoliberal Yeah, and anti-imperialist system. as well. And they, hmm. Yeah, and an yeah. anti-imperialist. Again, let's not exaggerate the leftism of Jeremy Corbyn. You know, what he was practicing was sort of, as others have commented, uh, you know, basic social democracy and international solidarity. Not and wars. Yeah, not starting wars, not necessarily withdrawing the UK, sadly, from all its international uh, involvements. I mean, he didn't promise outright to end the British, massive British arms trade around the world. I think he said he'd review it and so on. But nonetheless, the point is, this was the most credible left-wing program that had gotten close to government in many decades. And there was a massive... Uh, determination by the media, by uh, you know the uh, the managers of empire, let's say, to abort this threat, and the anti-Semitism smears were absolutely part of that, and there was open interference by Israeli politicians actively saying Jeremy Corbyn must be defeated. Though, as you pointed out in your article, Asa, and we've seen that the groups on the forefront of the anti-Semitism smears against the Labour Party have been groups with, with properly documented ties to the Israeli embassy and the Israeli government, groups like Labour Friends of Israel and the, uh, the Jewish Labour Movement. And, and several of these groups caught red-handed in the Al Jazeera documentary that was broadcast, um, was it in twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen? The first one about yeah about the the Israel lobby in the UK, and what was really astonishing, or I guess we shouldn't be astonished, is the extent to which the media simply ignored all this. And simply went with this story as if it was about, well, oh, is Jeremy Corbyn an anti-Semite or not? And utterly ignoring the broader context, which is, you know, what I've described, plus the the thing we're all dealing with now is the effort by Israel and its lobby and its many allies uh, in the US, the UK and Europe to redefine practically any criticism of Israel at all as anti-Semitism. And that's the context for this. And that's now that's the same hammer that's being used against students on campuses in Canada and across the US. And it's the same hammer that is going to be used against Bernie Sanders and is already being used against Congresswomen Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and anyone else who even questions uh, Israel. And so I mean, I think the defeat of Jeremy Corbyn is a tragedy for so many reasons, but it 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 does mean that you know that Israel and its lobby and 
the British government and establishment and the US government and establishment effectively succeeded in taking out a significant, what they perceived as a significant threat to their control of the you know, global neoliberal order. I think that uh, we're speaking uh, on the day after the new Tory government just put forward its Queen's speech, uh, which, for people not familiar with the preposterous British parliamentary <laughs> jargon, means it's a, a parliamentary agenda. In that uh, Queen's speech document, there's a, as was laid out in the Tory manifesto for the election, there's a threat to ban publicly funded bodies from take taking part in the BDS movement. Um, and this... In using the language of the IHRA's um, so-called working definition of anti-Semitism, um, we see that this is all part of the same campaign that you mentioned, Ali. This is really a transatlantic campaign to redefine um, incisive criticisms of Israel and its ideology Zionism, um, ban them and redefine them as anti-Semitism, as anti-Jewish prejudice. Um, and this is something, unfortunately, that has also been enabled by the Labour Party um, when it, uh, last year, endorsed the IHRA definition. Well, it's also a tactic to divide the left. Yeah. Yep. You know, that that's the other thing is that the role, and this is a historic role, I've been, been reading about this, but, you know, the, the early Zionist leaders, you know, Theodore Herzl, one, is his, one of his offers to you know, uh, various imperial leaders in the early days of Zionism, is we can help you to defeat the left by, you know, by uh, drawing Jews away from socialism or revolutionary politics. So we've seen again Israel and its lobby groups, uh, you know, trying to play a divisive role on the left. And that's that's been more or less um, explicit. Can you, uh, Ali and Asa, can you talk about the, you know, the, the warnings to the U.S. left with, with all that in place, with the Israel lobby bearing down, um, with Trump's executive order, which is also based on the IHRA working definition of anti-Semitism, conflating criticism of Israeli policy with anti-Jewish bigotry. Ali, actually, you wrote about this in the middle of July. Um, the, the, the title of the story is Israel Lobby Groups Hatch a Plan to Divide the Left. Um, and, it, and it was, you know, they, they actually explicitly say that they would like to delegitimize Jews deemed too supportive of Palestinian rights. Can you talk about the this this report that was authored by the Ray Institute, one of Israel's top right wing think tanks, and the Jewish Council for Public Affairs, um, and their warning that you know intersectionality, coalition building between marginalized groups in the U.S. Um, is is a threat to the state of Israel? Yeah, what this report uh, that that. Uh came out in July and it, it didn't get very much notice, but I, I found it and thought, well, this would be good to write about. But it's fascinating the insight it gives into the thinking of, you know, Israel lobby groups. And the Reut Institute is a significant group because this is a group with in Israel with close ties to the military security establishment. And they are the ones who 
wrote this report in 2010 on um, how to fight the so-called delegitimization of Israel. And that report uh, was very influential. It basically shaped this, the, the Israeli government's strategy for how to fight the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, yeah. and how Israel lobby groups around the world are fighting so-called delegitimization. Mm-hmm. And um, in this report uh, that they did this summer, they... On the one hand, they reaffirm their original approach, which is that we we have to basically divide critics of Israel into so-called soft critics and so-called um, delegitimizers. In other words, to co-opt the people who are just a little bit uncomfortable with Israel um, and and isolate the people who are actually really calling for full equality and rights for Palestinians and to paint them as extremists. But what they see happening in the last decade is that despite all these efforts, support for Palestine is growing, especially on the left. And they actually use the term Corbynization. Mm -hmm. They warn about the Corbynization of the U.S. left, where, you know, the mainstream of the Democratic Party, uh, whether you know, represented in a movement led by Bernie Sanders or or more broadly, begins to kind of accept as commonplace the notion that um, that Palestinians deserve full rights, that Israel shouldn't be occupying them and shouldn't be shooting dead protesters who are simply calling for their rights and so on. And so they're really looking for strategies of how to... Um, divide the left and prevent this sort of new consensus around Palestinian rights. And what they emphasize is really uh, pressing for, um, you know, a, an increased focus on, on identitarian politics. And and, uh, uh, and that's where accusations of anti-Semitism play in. But what, again, if you step back and look at the big picture, what this implies is that Israel and its lobby groups are going to focus on attacking and dividing the left while at the same time ignoring the real lethal threat of anti-Semitism that is uh, growing on the right and and that we've seen uh, take the horrific form of the synagogue shootings in Pittsburgh and in Poway, California and in Hesse, in, in, in Halle, in Germany, and other attacks that are all coming from the Nazi right, and that are being the neo-Nazi right, and are being, you know, fueled by Donald Trump and other right-wing politicians. So they're ignoring that, basically, or even allying with the right, uh, the most obvious case being Donald Trump, because, well, you know, they're pro-Israel, whereas they're attacking the anti-racist left, which would go into the streets to defend Jewish people as they would defend anyone else. Uh, And they're attacking them as anti-Semites. And the goal of that is to break solidarity with Palestine. Hmm. That's that's the strategy that's more or less explicitly laid out in that report. It's it's incredible. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, this is something we've really seen a lot in the Labour Party over the last four and a half years. It's something that the left has really been turned against itself over the issue of Zionism, essentially. And there's been uh, people who, you know, who are supposedly um, key parts of the Corbyn, pro-Corbyn movement, uh, 
most of all John Landsman, who have done their best to absolutely defend Zionism and Zionism's uh, position within the Labour Party almost at all costs, really, uh, and and that um, it's uh, no matter how anti-Corbyn or anti even the Labour Party groups like Labour Friends of Israel and the Jewish Labour Movement have been. Um, that their position should be protected within the Labour Party. Um, and it's it's become a, a real sort of uh, civil war within the Labour Party, and it's something that's been successfully mobilised to really divide the left against itself. And we can see that this, the, the success of these groups has been is self-evident to see, really, and it's really kind of depression not to be listened to or heeded basically when you've got people like uh owen jones going to um jlm events and uh you know owen jones is the influential lefty guardian columnist yeah so it's uh it's it's definitely it's the plan outlaid in this document has been basically deployed already in the uk over the last four and a half years they're laying it out in black and white. And it's it's kind of a narrative that the Institute has been trying to do for the longest time, really. Asa, can you tell us a little bit about the story that you covered um, earlier this year about TIP? I- explain what TIP is and, and why it was such a significant story that I know that we covered a lot, but, but I, I could hardly see in the mainstream news being covered. Yeah, so in a year where so many terrible things happened, we have to kind of take our victories where we can and uh in august i did this story uh titled israel lobby's commando force taken out and it was essentially the accumulation of uh years of reporting basically by us um about tip the israel project um and the Al Jazeera documentary, The Lobby USA. So the Israel Project was a Israel lobby group which they defined themselves as uh, the commando force to the APAX aircraft carrier, as it were. So with the APAC being the main Israel lobby group. Um, TIP was more focused on media uh influencing journalists and infiltrating the israeli narrative into uh, mainstream media and also into social media using deceptive facebook campaigns and we reported on some of those um but the accumulation of a a fun of years of decline of the israel lobby um ended up in tip going out of business and running out of funding and shutting down all its offices in August so um, that was great news Um, and we do think that the Al Jazeera uh, documentary uh, the Lobby USA played a small part in that in a way it was kind of a house of cards um, and I think that um, the undercover journalists uh, of Al Jazeera uh, and uh, our reporting of it uh, helped tip it tip that over (laughs) we tipped tip over (laughs) well said um so yeah essentially yeah tip what happened was um yeah tip shut down they shut down it's uh, all its operations 
Um, so what happened was that in some of the reporting of it, um, one of the an, an anonymous former tip supporter told the told Haaretz that um, it was obvious by 2017 there was a funding crisis, but they didn't address the core issues behind it. Um, and an unnamed source told the Jerusalem Post that the Al Jazeera expose wasn't the cause of the financial crisis, quote, but obviously it didn't help. So I think that the Undercover wow. Al Jazeera documentary did definitely play a part. Um, and I suppose we should explain as well. So in, in November 2018, we at, at the Electronic Intifada, along with uh, Lebanon's Al Akbar and um, uh, a French website, uh, whose name escapes me now. Orient Twenty One. That's it. We all together we yeah. published this this documentary titled uh, "The Lobby USA," which was an undercover investigation by Al Jazeera's investigations unit, uh, which ex really exposed um, the is Israel lobby in the U.S. Um, a undercover journalist, uh, Tony, managed to infiltrate it, and they all spilled the secrets to him and you had a, a, and, and the film was basically you know it was ki first kicked into the long grass and then eventually was completely censored um after al jazeera came under massive pressure not to publish it by the by the israel lobby itself um <laughs> it was there were there you know one they tipped they got tipped off uh the israel lobby got tipped off as to the existence of this documentary and they put a huge amount of pressure on Qatar you know which uh, runs Al Jazeera where where Al Jazeera is based and they folded essentially and uh, the the film was never shown on Al Jazeera um so we you know published it online in November last year along with the others um you, you there's you see the spectacle in this film there's a really funny kind of sequence where you've got Eric Gallagher um, who is one of TIP's uh, directors, and he was their uh, director, of, their head of fundraising. And in it, the undercover footage, he's really laying into his own donors. You know, he's really sort of disrespecting them. And he's there's one sequence where he he says most of our donors are nudniks, you know, a, a Yiddish word which means pests or bores. Um, and he sort of says, until recently, the people who we were attracting was the guy he's wealthy gives away $25,000 a year $10,000 is to us and this is his hobby and full-time job and he won't shut the f up or stop calling um, and then he said that tip was starting to expand into the class of donors that APAC has which is the more elite mm. writing big checks kind of money so um you know he's really kind of disrespecting his own donors and I, I can't imagine that helped tip's case at all for raising more donors so um i take this as a good news story it's definitely a good news story uh, in that you know this major israel lobby group basically went out of business and i'm certain that it's in a significant part because of what was exposed in the al jazeera documentary which as you pointed out we made available to the world um, and i think the more people learn about the kinds of tactics that these groups use which are secretly coordinated with the israeli government yeah. that's the other revelation from the film the less effective they'll be and that's particularly important 
You know, as we move into 2020, when U.S. politics moves into high gear with the election, and we're going to see, you know, anti-Semitism smears like never before against the left. And, uh, you know, the, the more educated people are, the better equipped they are to to, to stand up to the smears. Yeah. And uh, so that that's really key. And, and by the way, for people who haven't seen the Al Jazeera film, if, if they're getting some downtime over the holidays and want to watch something, you know, search for watch the film the Israel lobby did not want you to see and watch the, the film because it's yeah. really incredible stuff. It's a great watch. And I think another really key revelation from the undercover footage was how the Israel lobby privately, in private, they openly say that what they are doing um, is using anti-Semitism as a smear. You know, they say it quite openly. It's quite ironic, really, because in the Labour Party's witch hunt against the left and against uh, pro-Palestinian members, in this sort of um, fanatical uh, hunt to, you know, find these all these supposed anti-Semites that were supposedly lurking in the Labour Party. Um, one of the things that became a big crime was to deny that smears were smears, that the issue of anti-Semitism was being used as a smear. But in this undercover footage, um, there's one Israel lobbyist, Jonathan Shanza from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and he openly says anti-Semitism as a smear is not what it used to be. You know, he's kind of lamenting the fact that it's not as effective as it used to be. But it's just it's just taken as a standard for him that, yeah, of course, we smear people with anti-Semitism, you know. So it's, it, it, that was really fascinating insight to me. Well, looking ahead to 2020 um, and and with, you know, like, as Ali said, the this these smears of anti-Semitism are going to come full force at the left. Um, what's some advice that that our readers and listeners, organizers on campuses, um, what's some of the advice that that you can give um, to people, you know, in this upcoming U.S. election year? What are some of the things that keep you hopeful, um, that that combat cynicism, and um, that we should, you know, be looking forward to or cautioning ourselves against in, in the upcoming year? Well, one thing I think about, and I think this captures the essence of the Electronic Intifada's work, is talk about Palestine and talk about what's happening in Palestine. Because the the whole point of the smear campaign is to change the subject, to make to put us on the defensive. So we're constantly saying, you know, defending ourselves against these BS anti-Semitism smears, that's number one, or to scare people into silence. So, yes, of course, we have to talk about the smear campaign in order to expose it and debunk it. But that's not enough. We actually have to keep talking about Palestine because that's the one thing that Israel and its lobby don't want us to do. And and that's, you know, I think that's the essence of what we do. No matter what they throw at us, we're going to be reporting, writing, analyzing, publishing these beautiful videos, publishing these amazing feature stories from Gaza and the rest of Palestine. And and so that's the thing. Eyes on the prize. Don't be distracted from keeping the conversation going about what is actually happening in Palestine and what Palestinians are saying about it. Well, as always, it's it's a pleasure being able to work with both of you every single day at the Electronic Intifada. 
And um, I, I appreciate the work that, that you both do and, and the work that all of our colleagues and contributors do. And uh, the audience that, that keeps us um, afloat and strong as ever to head into this new year. Well, I just want to say also, you know, everything we do is supported by our readers all over the world. The, the reason we can do the reporting and stand up to um, any kind of pressure is because we're independent and that independence comes from the fact that we're uh, reader supported and so it's just a chance to say thank you to everybody who makes our work uh, from you know every blog post every video every podcast every feature article possible through your support it's really uh, the engine that keeps us going thank you and there's still uh, time to support the Electronic Intifada. Um, Ali, where can people go to to make their donation, and which is tax deductible, is it? It is for U.S. taxpayers, okay. yes. Unfortunately, we can't offer that to people around the world, but donations are welcome from any anywhere, and there's always time to make a donation to the Electronic Intifada. Just go to the website, and you'll see up in the corner... A button that says donate now and click that and it should be pretty straightforward. Excellent. Thank you so much, Ali. And thank you so much, Asa. And we'll see you back here in 2020. Have a really good holiday, everybody. Thanks so much. And that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. <laughs>